0: Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight I have decided to speak about the spiritual man-woman relationship as in the Tantric practice. Both because this is a very, very special and rare aspect, only in the hardcore, full-on Tantric schools, you will find this subject, because otherwise this subject is simply impossible. It doesn't exist. I'm even anticipating it now by saying that in uh, many spiritual environments, relationships are considered to be a nuisance, a delay, and a big problem. So people do not engage in relationships at least not of this man woman type so both because it's a specific thing and it has been brought forth and because they have been and there are coming up some tantra workshops which are dealing with this aspect of relationship and lately several people have addressed me questions in this respect and um Obviously, I have heard examples of some people who did not quite understand what is happening. It's very easy to be confused if things are not being spelled out very clearly. And uh, all these factors uh, told me that tonight I want to tell you something about this chapter of the Tantric practice, which is specific, especially in a Tantric school. And, of course, um, it comes from the fact, to start with, that Tantra is a very special spiritual outlook. We are looking at the world in a certain way, and we think that not only sexuality, but also relationship can be integrated, can be used in a spiritual way. We can say that in Tantra, both sexuality and relationships, they are not actually exactly the same thing. Both of them are exploited for the purpose of spiritual emancipation. You can use your sexual power and ultimately using your sexual power does not need to lead to a relationship. In our Tantra courses, we teach people even methods of self-training. You can even stimulate your sexual energy while alone and then sublime it to Ajna Chakra and to Sahasrara and get high states of consciousness. And that means the only relationship which you have is with yourself and with your inner woman, with your anima, or if you are a woman, with your animus, with your archetypal inner partner. There have been tantric schools especially of the more manipuristic type, the Tibetans were more into this than others, where people had sexual relationships of the tantric kind in a sort of a collaboration mode. Like people were not really partners, people were like colleagues, like mates, like I put my masculine energy together with your feminine energy and we are generating a state of samadhi and we are generating a powerful sublimation of energy where does this put us nowhere we could meet today in srinagar and have a ritual of samadhi and we might separate and not meet ever again in this lifetime in this physical body what's the relationship between us it's a sort of a transcendental archetypal pure love what i'm trying to say is that uh, it is hard for you to conceive it because Agama does not go there. Today, working with the people of the West, where the civilization is so Swadistanistic and so fallen in some egocentric principles, it would be very difficult to teach this kind of sort of a military tantra, a sort of like when you do tantra, you are the soldier of Shiva and Shakti. And you are not going for anything. You are just going for samadhi. And everybody else uses their physical body, their gift from God, their sexual energy, whatever they have, their chakras, their vitality, uses it to just offer it to God. Sex is like the sacrificial fire from the Vedic ritual. You light a fire and then you start throwing in that fire butter and seeds and all sorts of other offerings and the fire burns them and turns them into heat and sends them to the gods in the same way your sexual function is like a fire which burns in your perineum and you are just throwing in that fire your sexual energy and it moves up the chakras and it goes here and eventually you've gone as a series of lectures of Osho Rajnish in the old days were translated were grouped. you are going from sex to superconsciousness. What's the relationship in this? It may exist or it may not exist. If you are doing this sacred fire thing with somebody a hundred times over, we can say at least that you are comrades, you are pals, you are best friends. And of course it is possible that a reaction of pure love appears between you. At the same time, As I said, there would have been people who would have simply gone into this thing archetypally. This was some of the old-fashioned Tantra in which people were really, really radical about some of these things. In modern times, as Tantra is being preached to a world which is more anchored in Hollywood and in Walt Disney and Coca-Cola and MTV, Tantra is taught in a more mild way because uh, such a tibetan approach to tantra would be completely scary it's like would be talking about some sort of a completely brainwashed fanatic radical tantra thing and very few people are prepared to throw their lives to that level like i love god so much i'm ready to do anything no i'm ready to sell my body down the drain you know I'm ready to eat shit if that's what it takes. Whatever it takes, I want to reach to God. No holds barred. There are very few people who would go to that length. And that's why, of course, people want some of their susceptibilities, weaknesses, aspects of the ego. They want them protected, which sometimes is possible. We can find harmonious ways of integrating. And sometimes it's actually not possible. So sometimes... If you want to protect yourself too much, then you might simply not make it to Samadhi in this lifetime. It's as simple as that. Like, you have to sometimes be ready to throw yourself into the fire if you really want to go the full length, the whole monte. And that's why I'm uh, presenting this to show you where some of the parameters Because the Tantrics have seen Tantra as a simple sublimation of the sexual energy where you could even train alone. You could masturbate to the point of no return, hold back, bring the energy here. Do that a hundred times, a hundred times, a hundred times. And in the end, after two hours of self-stimulation, you are going to feel your Sahasrara big like that and you are going to feel that your svadisthana has been emptied of all the sexual tension and needs which are. And if you do that every day you have a sort of an individual tantric practice in which you basically play with your own sexual energy. And the fact that you are reaching close to an orgasm is basically you are almost having your animus and anima make love to each other. You have the internal orgasm. Your brain hemispheres almost fire with each other. And then there exists another level ...of Tantra in which the man and the woman say, I have the Shiva energy, you have the Shakti energy, then we can put it together. And that's kind of, I don't need to do it internally. It's not an androgenal thing. The androgyne, by the way, because that's a difficult word, the androgyne is an ancient Greek word used in alchemy... ...coming from the words andros and ginos, man and woman... An androgyne is a human being that has surpassed the polarity inside. It's an alchemical concept and it shows a man who has awakened his inner feminine part and a woman who has awakened her inner masculine part. This is happening often in the case of some people doing celibate forms of spirituality. A typical example was Paramahamsa Yogananda. Paramahamsa Yogananda, the famous author of autobiography of a yogi, when you look at his photos, he looked very feminine. It's not a coincidence. He looked feminine because he had awakened both polarities in himself and he didn't need an external partner for sex. He was having a sort of inner sex, not necessarily by stimulating his own genitals, but by kundalini yoga, by kriya yoga, by the different methods which he did. That's the condition of the androgen, in which the man is also a woman and the woman is also a man, and then the, the need for an external partner disappears. That's not really a tantric tradition. It's part of tantra, but it does not involve any sexual manifestation usually. That's why it's not something which we teach very often, although it is included in the theory of our Hatha yoga, Kundalini yoga, and all the other things which we teach. If you would practice four to eight hours per day of Hatha yoga, Kundalini yoga, and all these, and you would decide to have no sex whatsoever and to be celibate and to follow the right diet and everything, then you would become, in 12 years, probably androgynous. Your body will start losing the characteristics of your gender and it will go somewhere towards the middle, towards the midpoint, where you are neither male nor female. That has nothing to do with the hermaphroditical or with some sexual mutilation Or with some aberration. It's a possibility uh, which is illustrated by some of the old verses from the Bible. In the old forms of the Bible it says that when when God created Adam, God created him man and woman. And then because Adam was feeling alone, God put him asleep and took out of his rib and created the female part. Separating the male from the female, externalizing them. But the first version of Adam (coughs) was androgynous. He didn't need Eve. Eve was part of him. Eve was in him. The first creation was perfect and androgynous. And ultimately, if and when you become a Buddha, you will also be androgynous. Because if you are not complete, then it means you need a crouch. If you are a man and you say, I don't have the feminine aspect, then how can you be fully enlightened? How can you reach to that? Because actually you are lacking half of the manifestation. So of course, that's the original condition and that's the final condition. It's called androgynous or androgenal condition. And it is beyond any form again of sexual distortion or malformation (coughs) or abnormality. It is on the contrary. It is a state of consciousness, which is its a state of being, which is very advanced and very balanced. But of course, then you are not a Svadistanistic superficial person who says, and does it mean I'm going to be alone? (laughs) Buddha is not afraid to be alone. Only Svadistanistic incomplete people, they always try to touch antlers with everybody else and socialize because they don't feel well alone. It's like the famous proverb which says if you get bored when you are alone, it means you've got nothing to tell you. If you've got bored when you are alone, it means you are boring. Look in the mirror and admit, I'm boring because when I'm sitting alone with myself, I'm not excited. I'm not sufficient to myself. I can't be happy with myself. Well, then how do you expect somebody else is going to be happy with yourself if you can't be happy with yourself? No. Therefore... There is a deep philosophy in it and androgynal conditions are for people who surpass this need to fill themselves up, to fulfill themselves with the opposite gender or something like that. The androgynal condition is a state in which you are like God. God is not bored to be alone because God is sufficient unto himself, itself, herself, whatever you want to put there. And that's why um, this story with the relationships is like either you are going in this individualistic way or there can be a semi-cooperation between men and women (coughs) which starts from simple things like if I spend time with you, my darling, you're going to chit-chat a lot. You're going to make me want to put pickles for the winter And eat popcorns in front of a video. And basically you are going to waste my time. So I would like to have an efficient relationship with you. We meet at 8 o'clock. We make tantric love with sublimation until 10 o'clock. And then each one of them goes at their own home. And does their own thing. Like we collaborate for the purpose of love making. Because you happen to have a vagina. And I happen to have a lingam. And we can combine those two and go into great bliss. There is nothing else to it. Of course, we are people who respect, love, worship each other because we are two brothers, spiritual practitioners, the greatest comrades in the world. I give you the greatest gift which I can give with my body. You give me the greatest gift which you can give with your body. We are both worshipping the same God and going into the same archetype. There is no need to watch videos together or to dilly-dally, or to chit-chat. Like, we have to spend that full quality time. Uh, You think you can spend more than two hours of quality time with me? Like what? Uh, We could do four hours of Hatha Yoga together. Sure. So we can do four hours of Hatha Yoga together. Then we can make sexual tantra for two hours. And then again, we go to our bungalows separately, and we mind our own business. We focus... So, we are responsible for our own life, for our own time, for our own spiritual practitioner. Obviously, you realize that there are not many people in this hall tonight who could live like that. Because for this, you need to be like Milarepa. You need to be like a spiritual fanatic. Your life is 105% spiritual practice. There's nothing else in your life. You don't even cook food. For your food, you go and eat stinging nettles from the hillside. No, like there is nothing. You just want to die reaching nirvana. And if the lingam and the yoni can make that happen, sure, let's play with the lingam and the yoni. It's a method after all. There is nothing in it more than a method. That is a very radical and scary tantra, which of course for the people who are trying to make this new age bourgeois diluted tantra, which happens today in the whole world, it's totally scary because that would ruin completely all your excuses. Many people use tantra as an excuse. What I want is I want great sex. I want relationships. And I'm pretending I want God. Actually, I don't want God. Because if you take from me all the fun of the relationships, then it wouldn't be enough for me. So actually for me, the relationship is more important than God. I've met many men and women They had a relationship in yoga and tantra. When their relationship left them, when they dropped out of that relationship, they also stopped doing yoga and tantra. For them, their relationship was their God. And there are very few people who say, even if I don't have a relationship with her, with him, with you, I'm continuing my goal. I am a yogi for life. The relationship is an incidental event in my life. But my life is not about having a relationship. My life is about reaching nirvana. And the relationship serves that purpose. Very few people would be able to subject themselves to such a militaristic level of a relationship. And of course, then there exists the level where (coughs) men and women engaging in tantric practice not wanting to be celibate or androgynal then they engage into relationships and the biggest hope is that those relationships will be a support like if your lover you are trying to do your headstand and your lover says I have to tell you about my emotions stop doing that stupid headstand You might be wasting my time. So this relationship, instead of accelerating my evolution, might be slowing it down. You are preventing me from doing yoga. You are preventing me from meditating. You are keeping me distracted with other things. Then I don't know if this is the relationship which I want to have. Because I want to have a relationship which makes me practice double as much spirituality. I want to have a relationship which accelerates my spiritual evolution, not something which keeps me busy with collaterals. But then you have to think that way. You have to be fanatic and you have to say God comes first. Like the British philosopher who said if you don't give God the first place in your life, you don't give him any place. Because God is a very jealous thing. It can be the first or not at all. God never accepts the second place in anybody's life. So, if you don't put God first, then it will not work. And very few people are ready to stay in a relationship and at the same time to tell to their husband or wife, You come second. You are the second in my life, not the first. God is first. Just to warn you from the very beginning. That when there will be a choice between God and you, you are going to lose. That's the way it is with me. No, this is who I am. Very few people, or with your child, like in the famous novel of Hermann Hesse, Siddhartha, where his child is a criminal, becomes a criminal, and and he's split. He wants to defend his boy. It's the natural instinct of any parent, and at some point he has to choose between God and his son. Nobody would like to be subjected to this. You have to choose between your children And God. I remember having seen the case of a woman dedicated to yoga and tantra. She had two children. She had divorced her husband. She had custody over her children. And six years later or something like this, she simply called her husband and she said, here is the custody of the children because I don't have time to do yoga and tantra enough because of these children. You are a householder. You are not doing spirituality. You are just a family man. And you love. You You have asked for these children a lot. You fought a lot for the custody of these children. Today, I'm freely giving them to you. Because for me, God is more important than my own children. Many people would say that was a terrible mother. Because if we judge with Vadistana and from the judgment of the society, that is it. Mirabai, the great feudal... Vaishnava saint of India, she did just this. She was married with a Muslim guy and she had two kids or three, and she chose to sleep in her bed with a Krishna statue. Her lover was Krishna. She was sleeping with Krishna. And she loved, and she abandoned her kids and her husband and she didn't do her marital duties until the family of her husband poisoned her. She was assassinated in feudal India because she was a degenerate woman. She loved Krishna. Way too much. She put Krishna before her husband and her kids. Nobody remembers the name of her husband. 400 years later. Everybody is singing about Mirabai. Who was the real deal. That was a woman who indeed loved God. Loved God beyond her hormones. Beyond her instincts. Beyond all these socials, badistanistic things. She really wanted to go to the bottom of this. That's why Tantra may sound also very scary if you press the gas pedal to the bottom, if you really go to the bottom of it. It is how people are ready to build spiritual relationships. People talk about it, but unfortunately many people lie to to themselves. And because of this, people come, as often I tell to people, there is a dictum which says you have gone to the monastery, And you have taken the world with you inside the monastery. And in the monasteries where there are unenlightened monks and nuns, it's a hell. I don't know if you ever lived in a monastery, but I have been in monasteries and I know. It's a hell. It's just a world in miniature. The same shit which happens out there happens in ashrams and monasteries and this. Why? Because people bring the shit from there here who has more power, who's in charge, who does this, who is more respected, who is, you know, instead of praying to God, instead of going to Samadhi, they are just playing the games of the world, played at the level of the monastery, or of the ashram, or of the yoga school, or whatever it is. We can say the same. You come to Tantra, but you've brought the world with you. While at the door of the Osho Rajneesh ashram in Pune, it said, leave your shoes and your mind at the entrance of the ashram, at the entrance of the campus. Like if you come here with your social mind, we don't really need it. You don't really need it. It's just going to be a nuisance. And instead of going 100% towards spirituality, you're just going to bring the world with you. And you are starting and you say, no, I came to Tantra, I did Tantra fundamentals. I did tantric lovers and now I'm going to have a tantric relationship. And the truth is bullshit. You're just having a bourgeois relationship with sexual continence. You're just having a normal relationship in which the two lovers don't ejaculate. That's that's called porno movies. That's what the gigolos do also, you know. Like what's the big difference that some people have some sexual proudness? That's not where it's supposed to go. That's why I'm analyzing tonight with you this aspect which is so important because it creates and then people bring the world with them. Sooner or later it's going to break. You are going to realize that it didn't work. It was just a fantasy and then you break. Somebody was telling me today, you know I encountered several people in your school that had a broken heart. Of course they had a broken heart because they tried to play bourgeois games in a tantra school. And eventually when you do that, you bite the dust. It's much better if you know from the beginning, what am I willing to do? How far am I willing to go for my spiritual thing? And thus, actually only in Tantra relationships are accepted in this exceptional view. Because in all the others, if you become a Buddhist monk or nun or a Ashramite in India in a Vedantic ashram or if you go in a Christian monastery, relationships are a delay, (coughs) a nuisance. You have to spend too much time and energy and worry and then you don't give the first place to God. Even in science, Albert Einstein, when he got older and he saw the picture, Albert Einstein wrote it. He wrote it clearly. He said to his disciples in science, most of them were men in those days, in the 1950s. When Einstein was a professor in Princeton, most of his physics disciples were men. And he told to them, don't do the mistake which I did, don't get married, so you don't belong to one woman, but to the whole mankind. Like if you really want to do something big in science, you don't have the time to give to a relationship. The same thing was applied in social activism. Mahatma Gandhi... Instead of married people, I forgot the Hindu name, it's something which ends with graha, to be married. Then he told the people, instead of being vidyagraha or whatever that is, he said you should be satyagraha. Satyagraha means you should be married to the truth. Mahatma Gandhi said, I want a thousand young men and women who will not get married and not have kids and those people will be the future ministers an administration of India. Because you don't have to worry about putting bread and butter on your table for your kids, for your family. You can be fanatically devoted to India. At the time when I lived in India with my guru, Atal, Atar Bihari Vajpayee, the Prime Minister of India, was a single man. He was one of the Satyagrahi's of Mahatma Gandhi, people who never marry, exactly like, Elizabeth I, the Virgin Queen of of England, she took a test to prove her virginity and then she said, look, everybody should know, I am married, but I am married to England. And people venerate her memory until today because this woman sacrificed relationships, sex, everything, to give everything to the politics and to the country, to the safety of her time. Therefore, relationships are considered the source of weakening and if you want to do them in a spiritual way then you have to play the game by its rules and the tantrics have analyzed for more than a thousand years how a relationship can be a liability and how a relationship can be a support and a strength for you. That's why sexuality and relationships are exploited or what they can give. And when what I talk here, therefore, is that I talk about a method of evolution that can change your lives. You can stimulate your sexual energy alone and turn androgynous. You can share sexual activity with somebody without too much of a relationship and do a sort of raw sexual tantra. And you can also go into enlightened relationships. Then you have to be very careful that you don't bring the world with you into those because those are not like the relationships of the world. So it depends how far you are willing to push your spiritual aspiration. Otherwise, there will be no motivation enough because often in these spiritual relationships, one has to go against one's own ego. Like, you treat me badly, There is some time our relationship doesn't work. There is something. Then my ego goes through the roof. Spiritual relationships, believe me, I can tell you this after 30 years of being into it and more. They are going to challenge your ego almost every day. And if you cannot find a spiritual way out of it. Like somebody slaps you on one of your cheeks. Can you turn the other cheek? Because that's the solution from the heart, always. So, that's why I say the ego is challenged, it will be challenged. And many people feel that if their ego is crushed, then you are in trouble. Actually, if your ego is crushed, you are doing better. But your ego keeps complaining because it doesn't like to be crushed. Crushing the ego is a very painful and unpleasant act which makes you better off spiritually. So very few people have the stamina to go there, to accept that I'm going to put myself into something which will squash my ego. People want to feel good. And that's why these are landmarks for this new age type of diluted tantra, where tantra is a sort of a feel-good thing. I do it to feel good. But spirituality is not done to feel good. That's a total misunderstanding. I remember this Eckhart Tolle conference in the end of a weekend workshop which was recorded and he said and now we finished this workshop they had been working on Eckhart Tolle's methods of meditation for three days, two days and a half and we said now we finished this workshop which is supposed to be a workshop of self-improvement because in the bookshops there is a There's a shelf which says self-improvement or self-development or something. He says, actually, we should have called it a workshop of self-destruction. Because he said, I was not trying to improve yourself during these two days and a half. I was constantly trying to crush yourself during these two days and a half. There's no spirituality which goes in pampering your very precious personality or ego. That's not really spirituality. For most people, that's actually the anti-spirituality. And that's why um, we go in analyzing these things. And the first, there is a first level of Tantra, illustrated here in Agama by the Tantra Fundamentals type of workshops, in which men and women learn a certain set of sexual practices, how to perform the sexual continence, how to sublime the energy, how to acquire those basic skills. That's why we call it Tantra Fundamentals. And then, there is a second, deeper level of Tantra in which, because of this repeated interaction, because of this common practice, it is almost inevitable that a relationship appears. And that relationship is based on a lot of bliss, on a lot of pleasure, and on going deep spiritually. And that's why it can be very slippery Because if we don't put the right things in it, it can take us in the wrong place. To understand, I will start from the top. Like to make you understand what is this spiritual man-woman relationship, we always start with the stars. In Kashmiri Shaivism, Abhinavagupta says you have to start with the highest possible spiritual practice. And if you are not good enough and you are not strong enough, then you can't practice that it's too much for you and then you try the second best. And the third best, until you find the measure of your present-day strength. The same principle is illustrated by the Arabic-Arabian proverb, which says if you want to trace your path straight, attach your chariot to a star. Or, as the Americans would say, think big. Like, if you don't think big, you will not be able to achieve properly the small things. You have to have great ideals. You have to guide yourself by the principles. Well, let's start with the principles. The relationship which appears between men and women, if they wish to be spiritual, always has a divine archetype. We here, we are just copycats. We are microcosms. We are copies of the universe. And the fact that half of you happen to be men and half of you happen to be women, (coughs) and you are meeting and playing in sexual and erotic and loving games with each other, is nothing but a reflection of what happens at the top of the universe. At the top of the universe, the universe which was one, it's split into two, called by the Taoists, Yin and Yang, and called by the Tantrics, Shakti and Shiva. And thus, this is the archetype. When you make love, every man and every woman that make love, they in a certain way copy Shiva and Shakti. There's no other way to have polarity. It's plus and minus. It's like the battery of the universe. It's like the original Yang and Yin of the universe. And that's why the archetype is a model that guides us like every yogis that practiced the tantric yoga in India for the last thousand years, they wanted to be like Shiva and Shakti, like Shiva and Parvati. Some yogis from India who practiced tantra, they were not Shaivas. They were from another religious current of India. They belonged to the Vaishnavas, to the worshippers of Vishnu. And for the Vaishnavas, the supreme male personality that was incarnated on earth is Krishna. And Krishna was the lover of Radha. So, Vaishnava Tantric yogis, they wanted to be like Krishna and Radha. Shaiva Tantric practitioners, which were the majority of Indian practitioners, and Agama is a Shaiva school uh, in this way, they wanted to be like Shiva and Shakti or Shiva and Parvati. They can carry different names, but ultimately we are talking about the same archetypes. That's why... It's very difficult to start from this idea of perfection. Like, I want to make love to you, and I want to become Shiva, and I want to see Shakti in you. I am the male part of the universe, and you are the female part of the universe. I remember once I was having a little relationship with a lovely Shakti in Denmark, and at some point she got offended. And I said, what happened? And she said, it's because you don't love me, you love the goddess. Like she was jealous on the goddess. She was she couldn't take it that there is something bigger than her. Her ego was offended by the fact that somebody saw the goddess in her because she was all like me, 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 and me, me, me. If you are me, 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 then don't come to Tantra really, or practice a watered down slow form of Tantra because what you need is some bourgeois satisfaction for your daily life. Maybe you are frigid, impotent, something, and you want to have some sex therapy. And Tantra can give you that sex therapy. But it means you honestly don't want to become Shiva and Shakti. You are not going to the major league. Your expectations and your reach is shorter. You have not attached your chariot to a star. It is like Jesus. Who says Jesus puts in front of us a sort of model that guides us. Jesus says and everybody knows it's impossible factually. But still Jesus says it like a psychological thing. Jesus says be perfect as our father in heaven is. Who can be perfect? But Jesus says you should try every day. It doesn't matter if you can actually be But you should strive to be perfect. Therefore, this is attach your chariot to a star. Think big. Think you want to be God and maybe you are going to become superhuman at least. If you think big, you would get at least a little. But if you think little, you are going to get very little. Therefore, your goal has to be very idealistic, very archetypal. So, first of all, we have the relationship, Shiva and Shakti. And if we read mystical literature from India of how Shakti interrogates Shiva, what to do and so on, and the kind of relationship which they have, like Shakti is asking Shiva, what meditation should one do to reach enlightenment? And Shiva gives her the Vijnana Bhairava Tantra. And in the end, she she says, I understood everything. I'm fully satisfied. And then she embraces him and gets penetrated by his lingam. And they are both one again. Like Shakti separated from Shiva to ask him something for the benefit of humanity. Then she is united with Shiva in ecstasy again. So that's a sort of, that's where it all starts. It starts from a universal principle and archetype. Next to this big ideal, which is we can read about it, and which is perfect and therefore it seems unattainable. Next, there come the relationships between beings with high spiritual realization or with great aspiration. Like if we cannot see Shiva and Shakti because those are archetypes and we can read legends and myths about them, then at least we can look at some of the great people that had relationships. Like we don't know if Buddha actually had any relationship ulterior to his enlightenment of course the tantric buddhists of tibet they say that there is some secret teaching of buddha and many of the scholars from the theravada hinayana buddhism or others they say nonsense there isn't it's just made up to satisfy their theology but historically buddha was a fully celibate person during the rest of his life so okay That's perfectly possible. And the idea is, you know, like where do we see these perfect examples? Like who can guide us? Of course, the relationships made by enlightened beings, they are very exemplary relationships. Like we don't have anybody better to show us where it goes. And when we study them, we are going to see that these relationships are totally revolutionary they are not bourgeois at all. They are very unconventional relationships simply because their love was not the love from a cheap Hollywood movie. Their love was the love of God. And the love of God is very seldom manifested in human beings. Like Rumi, he sings poems of love and he sings to God and he says, you are... The master of existence. You are the lover of the lovers. And he says, one day, I shall be a lover like you. Like, all I want is to learn to love the way God loves. Because that's the perfect love. That's the real love. And yes, a tsunami is coming and 250,000 people die. And all the rationalists and the skeptics and the bitter people say they cannot be a God. Because if there would be a God, why would it allow hundred thousand children to die in a tsunami or something like this because people think that if God loves then there cannot be genocide in Rwanda or in Cambodia or something. God would have stopped it if you would have really loved people because people think that love is something which is attached and protective and people don't understand what a love is which comes from an absolute freedom from the infinite that love, many people will say, you know what, Swami, you can take that love and shove it up your ass. I want a love which I feel here in my daily life. The problem is that that love which you feel here in the daily life, very often can be a lie which when you die, will die together with you. It's not eternal. It's not meaningful in the big picture. And that's why the great mystics have said the only way is to comply to this divine love to learn the ways of the divine love because we invent all sorts of lukewarm egocentric things to satisfy our sense for security for pleasure for this for that no we want to be loved for increasing our ego but love is supposed to decrease your ego when there is love there is selflessness like Rumi says a lover knows only humility He longs to kiss every lock of your hair. He sneaks in your alley and so on. He says, don't fret. He has no choice. This is the real love when Rumi sees it. It's not something for self-aggrandizement. Love is on the contrary. Self something which is making the human being humble. We'll read a few of those things to bring you back because we are missing the true nature of love. And we are contenting ourselves with something which we call love and which is a mixture of functions of Muladhara, of Svadhistana, of Manipura and partly of Anahata and which is something which eventually is just serving our ego. And serving our ego is not going to lead us to where we want. Tantra cannot betray you in this way. Pretend to teach you the way to love and show you the way to some bourgeois lukewarm thing and when you die you will say, I didn't reach anything. I just tampered my own ego for the last 60 years. And then you turn to your teacher and you say, why didn't you teach me better? That's why the teacher has to teach you better, even if you don't like to hear it. You might simply say, well, you know, what you say is not for me. Bye-bye, I don't know if I'm for this. But at least it has been said. It has been explained. Try to think about great spiritual beings that had relationships. I didn't put them in a certain order. Padmasambhava, the Guru Rinpoche of the Tibetans, with Lady Tsogyal Yeshe, or whatever her name was, the lady, the Dakini lady, and so on. What was their relationship? Read the Yoga of the Great Liberation of the Tibetans, the translation of Evans Vence, which is the life of Padmasambhava. And you'll see, how did Padmasambhava respond? No, so Gyalesha said, teach me Tantra or this and stay with me for the rest of the life. And Yod, and Padmasambhava said, I will stay with you nine days. Three days I will teach you this. Three days I will teach you this. Three days I will teach you this. Like We are not here to just put pickles for the winter. We are here to teach enlightenment. There is a huge difference between those things. And therefore, read about Padmasambhava Drukpa Kunle. Drukpa Kunle, the divine madman, is the name of the book. Um, a translation of the life of the biggest Bhutanese, Tantric, Tibetan style yogi, Buddhist, Tibetan style of yogi. Drukpa Kunle, when you read his approach to relationships and things like this, you get goosebumps. Like Drukpa Kunle, at some point, he meets, a he he begs. And a girl opens the door and Drukpa Kunle sees her and he says, you are good for Tantra. Can I initiate you in Tantra? And she says, yes. And then Drukpa Kunle says, bring some butter. And she brings some butter and he lifts her skirt and penetrates her on the threshold of the door. Like he doesn't even bother to take her in bed. He smears his penis with butter because she was virgin and takes her right there and initiates her in Tantra. This is not some Californian New Age Tantra. These are people who are crazy for God. These are people who are living in another world. They have a different set of values and they would go somewhere in a different place. There is a translation of the lives of four Lamas from Dolpo. That's what the book is called, Four Lamas of Dolpo by David Snellgrove. It's four manuscripts of biographies from Tibet, from Dolpo. Dolpo is in today's Nepal. Tibetan yoga still, these are Tibetan tantrics. Some of the Tibetans were really nuts when it came to tantra. And one of the biographers, one of those biographies, is a lama called Merit Intellect. And he says, in my childhood, I didn't have much contact with yoga, with tantra. And he said, it's only that there was this uncle of mine who was secretly a tantric practitioner. In India and Tibet, sometimes tantric people went underground because they knew that these practices are going to provoke the normal people, so they preferred to go into full secrecy. And then he tells the story, which any one of you is a social worker in the United States or some country like this, you would choke the guy with your bare hands. He says, my uncle was a secret practitioner of tantra. He practiced it with his wife. And at some point, his wife died young. And then he continued his tantric practice with his daughter. And they were practicing. And after I don't know how many years, the people from the village, they started gossiping. Like it's impossible to be in a small Tibetan village and not to have everybody count how many farts everybody is pulling in that village. So at some point, the villagers realized what was happening. And of course, they were not more tolerant than people would be in today modern society. So they picked up their pitchforks and whatever other agricultural instruments they had, and they went to the house of this guy to lynch him. And they went in front of the house, and this guy heard that they were coming, and he came out, and his daughter was near him. They were standing there on the porch of the house, like, what does the village want from us? And the villagers started shouting, we heard that you guys are doing the unacceptable. You know, it's like, this cannot happen in our village, it cannot happen in our society. Uh, We just came here that you tell us what the heck is happening. And this guy whose name I forgot, instead of answering, he just grabbed his daughter by the shoulders, looked at the guys, and their bodies became transparent, turned into rainbow, and disappeared. They simply dematerialized like this in front of the whole village. And he says the villagers from that village A few years later, somebody who was a shepherd and was roaming around, he found some dwelling, some place of human habitation in the cave of the eagle on a mountain near our village, which demonstrated very clearly that this guy did not quite disappear. He just rematerialized in that cave with his daughter. They kept on practicing for a year or two until they reached a further perfection, some deeper level of perfection and then they disappeared completely from this world and we don't know where they are. Like, this guy didn't pay a damn on the fact that he was committing incest because his morality was, if you can turn into rainbow, then the human rules don't apply to you. No. We know that genetically incest is condemned because it will generate malformed children. And all. These guys were not in it for babies. We're talking about a totally different story there. And therefore, such relationships are extreme. That's why I'm starting with the relationships which are extreme. Saint Francis of Assisi. Francis of Assisi had a lover, and when he was looking at her and spending time with her, if there were potted flowers in that room, they blossomed in 30 minutes. If he spent 30 minutes with Claire, with Clara, Chiara in Italian, then the flowers would bloom. So great was their love. And she he lived in a male monastery. She lived in a female monastery. When he died, they took him on a stretcher, almost dead, under her window. She was not even allowed to leave her monastery to see him, except from the window she could see him. This man and this woman, at some point there is a flower, the Fioretti, the little flowers of St. Francis, which are anecdotes and legends from those days which say that the peasants even jumped in the forest to put out the fire because they thought there was a fire in the forest. And it was just Francis sitting and praying together with Chiara. They were praying and their love was so great that there was a red light coming out of the forest to the point where the peasants thought that there was a fire in the forest. So that's another exceptional love, which is not manifested in a sexual way. That's a platonic love because he was a monk, she was a nun, So these people, they were virgin, both of them, and they had a love which was a sort of a right-hand tantra, and they had a relationship. This woman was the daughter of a rich family, and basically Francis of Assisi convinced her to become a nun. And the family of the girl hated him for the rest of his life because he kind of hijacked their daughter and turned her into a nut. Living into a monastery, into a nutcase, into a monastery. The temple dancers of India, the devadasis, the devadasis of India, devadasis, servant of the gods, which are very often uh, tantric dancers, some of them were tantric practitioners. And the tantric dancers of India, they had very special lives. For example, one of the most strict orders of devadasis, they had the following discipline never go with a man more than three days. Three days you are allowed to be with a man. Because after three days, you start putting pickles for the winter. After three days, you start making plans. For three days, is just the ecstasy and the bliss, the pure thing. The ego is not working very much during the first three days. So they simply had this rule. Just to show you that people subjected themselves to these things in the belief that those are ways to perfect a relationship, to not let a relationship go into the field of ego. Ramakrishna had a great relationship with Sarada Devi. Ramakrishna was sleeping two hours per night. Very soon in his life he became completely celibate and they had a right hand tantra. He could worship Sarada Devi until she would go in samadhi. Not with his lingam, just with his mind, he could push his partner in samadhi. And one day when Sarada Devi had a full moon premenstrual day or whatever it was, she said, give me a baby, at least. Because she was kind of getting bored. She was unable to go so frantic as he was going. And Ramakrishna laughed and he said, you are going to have so many children that you won't even understand the language which most of them speak. And when he was dead 20 years later, when the Ramakrishna ashram had become legendary, there were a lot of pharangs, a lot of foreigners there, and some of them spoke to Sarada Devi, who spoke only Bengali. And then she raised her head, hands up in wonderment, and she said, I remember the day when the father, she called Ramakrishna father, when she said, when the father told me that I will have so many children that I won't even understand their language. Because all those disciples in the ashram, they were her disciples. She was the mother of the ashram. In India, they were considered her spiritual children. So she had children, although those children were not her flesh and blood children. They were not biological. Like Ramakrishna told her, you know, you don't need to be one of the billions of women who use their hormones to produce progeny. You are going to have children with a little difference that they will not be made from your DNA. But they will be other people's children. We are all brothers and sisters. What does it matter if they are yours biologically or not. When ultimately they will come to you. And tell you. Please guide me. I'm your child. You are my mother. Help me into this. You are going to be their mother. After all. So. Another extreme way of going. Krishna. The legendary Krishna. Because he is a parent. Krishna was. Is the ultimate womanizer of India. He's supposed to have made love with a thousand gopis. And he was such a great lover and such a paranormal person that sometimes the gopis felt they were with him at the same time in various places. And Krishna eventually settled for a woman called Radha. And this is the cherry on top of the cake Radha was the wife of another dude. So Krishna is a thousand times a womanizer plus. He is an adulterer. He made Radha leave her husband and commit adultery. And still Krishna is worshipped as one of the most divine teachers, as an avatar, as a divine descent that India has known along its history. So how bourgeois are the relationships of Krishna? Copying Krishna, if you want to be like Krishna, how far does that go? Gandhi, Mahatma Gandhi had a great relationship and his wife was so obedient to him that when a journalist asked him, um, Mahatma Gandhi wants to change India. He came to do revolution when he came from South Africa. What is your interest? What is your glory? What are you looking forward to? And Kashturba Gandhi, the wife of Gandhi, she said, my glory is to serve my husband. I, like I'm not asking for anything. Now there is a boulevard in New Delhi, which is called the Kashturba Gandhi Boulevard. And everybody knows about the wife of Gandhi. But she didn't want, she simply said, I am 100% body and soul. I am the soul of my husband. That's what I am. And when the British wanted to give her penicillin because she had a pneumonia, Mahatma Gandhi forbade it. He said, injections are a violent form of treatment because you have to prick somebody and there will be blood. And therefore, they do not correspond. I don't think that that's the treatment which I want my wife to have. And his wife died of pneumonia. Until today, there are people who accuse Mahatma Gandhi that he was a total asshole and that his wife died because he refused a penicillin injection, which might have been able to save her. Therefore, this is another spiritual relationship, maybe not as the Padmasambhava relationship or something, And we are looking at other and other relationships of these. I could continue the list. Sri Aurobindo, who called from France, a woman, a Jewish-French woman who was the possessor of a hotel, a millionaire in those days. And this woman came came to India and there Aurobindo told her, you are with me from a previous life, you are my partner, stay here with me. She went back to France, she sold everything. She went to India and she became the mother. She became the consort, the partner of Sri Aurobindo. And she lived to create parts of what today is called Auroville. One of the big dreams of a spiritual community and a spiritual city in India. Even some of these examples which I gave to you, if they are Tibetan, Indian, French, or Italian or what they are... They show us, of course, some traces, some patterns due to the social integration. Like, of course, an Indian woman, even though very spiritual, she would behave in the ways of an Indian woman and not like an Italian woman or not like a German woman or others. So already at the level of the great spirit, we see some sort of adaptation. Like the famous proverb which says, when in Rome... Do like the Romans, you know, there is no other way. When you come on planet Earth in Kali Yuga, you have to live on the planet Earth in Kali Yuga. There is no other way. Well, when we come lower to the practitioners, to the beings with lesser spiritual realization, they must integrate themselves on purpose. This thing to be spiritual, to be like Padma Sambhava, to be like Krishna or to be like Shiva and Parvati, like Shiva and Shakti, it does not come spontaneously. Because we are all brainwashed by the society. We have traumas. We have received a certain education from the parents, from the family, from the school, from the Hollywood movies that we have seen and so on. And therefore, we think about things in a special way. And then we suddenly try to put ourselves in the shoes of Ramakrishna and of Padmasambhava and of Aurobindo. This Takes a long, it's a long distance. And that's why these people are learning from the archetypal examples and from the examples of the great spiritual beings. In a certain way, because people say, why does Tantra say that you have to love without jealousy, for example? Like it's very inconvenient to love without jealousy when you are a very jealous person from your parents and education and this jealousy is coming up every five minutes in you. And you have to fight it. And it's like some people who say, I would prefer, I wouldn't fight it, you know. And then I'm letting go. And I'm succumbing to it. And I'm going in a hell. And then somebody says, oh, your heart must be broken. And then I'm questioning. It's like, why did the Tibetans or the Hindu gurus, why did they come with these stupid rules? Like these rules are rules which are a nuisance to your ego, and they are supposed to be painful and nuisance, it's exactly the opposite of what you would spontaneously do. You would spontaneously do what these rules say, only if you are Padmasambhava and Milarepa and Aurobindo, then it's spontaneous for you to act spiritually. Otherwise, as long as you are at the level of the ignorance, it's normal for you the solution to be egoistic. And when the anti-egoistic solution is given to you, Of course it hurts. I met people who said, oh, I had a a big uh, issue with my boyfriend and then I phoned to my best friend from America or to my mom or something to tell them about my problem. And I told them, what else do you expect that your mom or your best friend will give you than an ignorant, selfish, self-serving solution? Because if your mother would be the mother of Aurobindo, or Sarada Devi, then maybe your mother will give you a spiritual advice. Anybody else will give you an egoistic advice. Everybody else will say, take care of yourself. Hey, look that Jesus didn't take care of himself. Neither did Milarepa. Neither did Ramakrishna. Neither did Mirabai. Nobody, the great people didn't take care of themselves. Take care of yourself is a greeting Which I receive sometimes. Especially from the North Americans. you know. And it's like I'm smiling. All I can do is smile. Because these people are telling me. Serve your ego. That's what take care of yourself says eventually. I don't take care of myself. I take care of the will of God. And whatever it does to me. That's what it does. If it takes me on a cross. It takes me on a cross. I cannot afford to avoid the cross. Because I have to take care of myself. Therefore... That's why I'm saying, when you want advice, in this respect, that advice is not always serving your ego. is not always what you would like to hear. Many people want to go to some counseling. In the school, many people told me, you know, we would like to do some counseling for people who do yoga and tantra. And I said, are you sure you're going to give them the anti-egoistic advice? Because otherwise your counseling goes against what I'm trying to do. I'm trying for five years to destroy people's ego. And then you go and tell them, yeah, but maybe you should take care of yourself. Then that counselor is not welcome in my school because it's going against what I'm trying to do to people. I'm trying to do to people to get out of their ego, not to pamper their ego. And thus, this is very difficult to understand and many people complain. I remember I once read the raving of some lunatic was complaining that he was in the boot camps of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi doing transcendental meditation. And he had purification reactions and he felt really bad for a few days. And he said, this is unacceptable. Like, what? Do you expect that Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, his doctor, feel good? You know, you go to Maharishi Mahesh Yogi because you want him to make you feel good? He's bound to make you feel bad. You do yoga five hours per day, I can promise there will be purifications. And aggravations, and even psychological crises, and so on. And the solution is not to take care of yourself. The solution is to go even further, to go out on a limp completely, and to simply say, If I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm going to die for God, at least. I'm going to die searching for my Supreme Self. It's an act of spiritual heroism, and that's it. This life, I'm a spiritual seeker, and I can die for it. That's the attitude which will take you beyond your difficulties. And thus, one, in, if you want to be an aspirant into spiritual relationships, you must play a role. Like, there is a role. There are some rules of engagement. And if one is not willing to play the role, like be a vira, be a shakti, then maybe it's better not even to try to do tantra. Maybe you want to do some tantra for some medical purposes, just because you have some new roses, or you need some sexual healing, or it's good. Tantra can be used for those levels. But then you are in the first level of Tantra. Tantra is medicine, not relationship. Tantra, where through that kind of relationship, you become inspired and guided spiritual. No? There are There are so many things which I could say here, but ultimately I can sum them up in this. When you play a role, there is a role. And in your role, some things have to be done and some things don't have to be done. I remember a guy caught in the whirlwind of this anti-communist revolution which happened in Eastern Europe some 26 years ago. And there were a thousand people who were arrested and they were threatened that they would be taken and machine gunned. They will be executed instantly. And everybody was crying. and They were mostly guys. And one of these men, he said, brothers, why do you cry? You know, this has been the fate of man ever since history is there. When the enemy is coming, who is going to defend the city and the country? Men pick up guns and they go and defend their country. And many get shot and killed and maimed and so on. That's the dharma of being a man. It's part of the role to be a man. Perhaps in the modern world, there would be a few females who would join the military. But the percentage is small it's still mostly men in the traditional society that would have to bear weapons and hold their, and defend their homeland. So it's like he simply said, you don't realize. You have been born to die. If you are born as a man, there is a 1% chance that one day there will be a war in your country and you will be killed defending your country. And you have to accept it. This is your dharma as being born as a man. You cannot have babies in your belly. If you are a woman there will be a big lump of flesh of about five kilos passing through your vagina and tearing it apart. And if you have five kids, it will happen five times. No. It's the dharma of being a woman. Men cannot give birth from their yoni of anything. They don't have a yoni to give birth to anything. So there are things which are specific to men, specific to women, and that's why today, as I wrote here, everybody is unfortunately asking for their rights there is a charter of the human rights. But there is not a charter of the human duties. We forget to say that if you are a pedophile and a rapist, then your rights are going to be taken away from you and you are going to be locked in a dungeon forever. No? Like we forget to say that rights are deserved only when you do your duties. Like if you behave as a human being, then you have the human rights. And if you behave like a subhuman then your rights are not the same. And it's not because I am an imperialistic dictator. That's what the society does. Even the most democratic and tolerant societies, if you don't live up to your duties, they take away your rights. You lose your freedom, you lose your right to vote, you can have your wealth confiscated, depending on the nature of your crime. And thus, remember that in nature, the rights are one. We live in a society which is deeply imbalanced and people are given rights which they do not deserve. Like the lion is the king of the jungle. But guess what? The lion deserves it. A lion can break the spine of a bull, of a buffalo, with a snap of its tail. It can hit it with a tail like a karate chop and break a spine of a bull which can take a thousand kilos and more. And the lion can break it with... That's why the lion is the king of the jungle. The, the lion has no; it's not a rabbit which has been voted to be king of the jungle. The lion is actually the king of the jungle. It's the natural order. It's the resonance with the laws of nature. It's a resonance with the laws of the universe. And that's why attention must focus because in relationship, men-women, There appear a lot of issues and the the attention one must focus on spiritual things, not upon inferior things or issues. It's very easy in a relationship to lose compass and to start quarreling about selfish things. Who does this? Who does that? Who is the king of the jungle here? Who is this? Those are not the issues. Those are issues of the ego. And if you satisfy the issues of the ego for 20 years, you will not get to Nirvana. You might feel better because you make some rules of engagement. I'm making this much money, you are making this much money. And then I do this and you do that. This is just egoistic rules. I have, when I was young in the country where I came from, the couples never separated their money, never. They always had their money in common. There was never an issue who made more money and this money is mine and I can go and get drunk with them and this money is yours and you can go and buy yourself a car with it or there did not exist separate bank accounts for the members, for the husband and wife in a family. It would have been considered extremely selfish. Extremely No, that you can, why can't you share everything? You share sex, you share money, you share everything. There's nothing which you are not sharing. Therefore, uh, if you focus on inferior things, you may miss some of the spiritual issues. And as Eckhart Tolle himself said, in spiritual relationships, one often needs to trample over one's own ego. Of course, there are factors influencing relationships, and I'm not going to talk tonight about those, such as basic typologies, astrological signs, enneagram typologies. Stories like Mars and Venus, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, dominant chakras. There are a lot of things which we analyze and which determine how the dynamics of a relationship is. But here are a few points for your meditation because some of you in this school are trying to have Tantra with relationships and then... It's very often useful to meditate on some of the following points. Tantric relationships, is my first bullet here, are meant to attain love. If you have done Tantra for 10 years and you have not reached love, real love, it's a fiasco. You've wasted your time. You are a failure. Where is that Tantra? So Tantra has to reach love. But love is something very special. And love has tears also. Let me share some of the things with you about love. And let me start with that one with tears. Ahlil Gibran, on love. Then said Almitra, speak to us of love. And he raised his head and looked upon the people, and there fell the stillness upon them. And with a great voice he said, when love beckons you to follow him, though his ways are hard and steep, his ways are hard and steep, and when his wings enfold you, yield to him, though the sword hidden among his pinions May wound you. And when he speaks to you. Believe in him. Though his voice may shatter your dreams. As the north wind lays waste the garden. For even as love crowns you. So shall he crucify you. You want to have tantric relationships. And have love. You are going to be crucified. It's a promise. There is no love without crucifixion. Realize this. People want to have love as long as it's fun. It's not fun all the time. Far from that. Even as he ascends, even as he is for your growth, so he is for your pruning. For even, uh, I'm sorry, even as he ascends to your height and caresses your tenderest branches that quiver in the sun, so shall he descend to your roots and shake them in their clinging to the earth. Your roots are your ego your attachment to the earth. Love is trying to make you cosmic. It's so difficult to let go. Like sheaves of corn he gathers, he makes an analogy with making bread, cornbread. Like sheaves of corn he gathers you unto himself, he threshes you to make you naked, he sifts you to free you from your husks, he grinds you to whiteness, he kneads you until you are pliant, and then he assigns you to his sacred fire that you may become sacred bread for God's sacred feast. All these things shall love do unto you that you may know the secrets of your heart and in that knowledge become a fragment of life's heart or otherwise said of God's heart. But if in your fear, and this is a very important warning which comes to Tantra, but if in your fear you would seek only love's peace and love's pleasure, then it is better for you that you cover your nakedness and pass out of love's threshing floor into the seasonless world, where you shall laugh, but not all of your laughter, like you'll never go to the bottom of, the, of things, and weep, but not all of your tears. Love gives naught but itself, and takes naught but from itself. Love possesses not, nor would it be possessed, for love is sufficient unto love. When you love, You should not say, God is in my heart, but rather, I am in the heart of God. And think not that you can direct the course of love. For love, if it finds you worthy, if you don't have it, you are not worthy of it yet, directs your course. Love has no other desire but to fulfill itself. But if you love and must needs have desires, let these be your desires to melt and be like a running brook that sings its melody to the night, to know the pain of too much tenderness, to be wounded by your own understanding of love and to bleed willingly, willingly and joyfully, to wake at dawn with a winged heart and give thanks for another day of loving, to rest at the noon hour and meditate love's ecstasy, to return home at eventide with gratitude, And then to sleep with a prayer for the beloved in your heart and a song of praise upon your lips. So we said that tantric relationships are supposed to lead to love. Well, let's hear a little bit more about this love, this time from Paul, the Apostle of Christ gives the famous, famous quote from the letter to the Corinthians where he sets a standard for love try to think when I'm reading this how much of this applies in your relationships if you have or had some relationships how much of it can be found in this page and how much of it was as far as heaven and earth from this page says Paul If I could speak in any language in heaven or earth, but didn't love others, I would only be making meaningless noise, like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I knew all the mysteries of the future, and knew everything about everything, but didn't love others, what good would I be? And if I had the gift of faith, so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move, without love, I would be no good to anybody. If I have gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, because you can do that without love, yeah? I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would be of no value whatsoever. Love, now are the measures of it. Now are parameters. Love is patient and kind. Patient and kind. Love, is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way like me, do it my way. Love is not irritable and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It is never glad about injustice but rejoices when the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever, but prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will all disappear. Now we know only a little and even the gift of prophecy reveals little, but when the end comes, these special gifts will all disappear. It's like this, when I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child. He means as a mental child, as a emotionally immature child, like not knowing love, as a child does. But when I grew up, I put up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly as in a poor mirror, but then we'll see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but then... I will know everything completely, just as God knows me now. These are the three things that will endure. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Therefore, the first idea to remember is that tantric relationships are meant to attain love. Put the characteristics on love on your mirror in the bathroom, and every time you go to brush your teeth, Look and see if you are living up to the ideal of love. Another bullet. Tantric relationships are meant to attain the realization of your true supreme self and consequently produce a proportional diminishing of the ego. Therefore, the ego is characterized by measures such as pride, Respect, vanity. Therefore, it is obvious that the one has to sacrifice oneself. So many people say, my boyfriend, my girlfriend doesn't respect me. Who is asking for respect? Is your Atman asking for respect? No. Is that little ridiculous midget which slips in your belly button. Which cries for respect. Me, 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 me. I have to be heard. I have to be seen. Who doesn't respect me? Nobody. Guess what? The universe doesn't give a rat's ass about you and your existence. You are tinier than a dust of a grain of dust in this universe. And when you will disappear in seven hundred million years, nobody will know anything about you and it will be irrelevant. All the respect which you've asked for. So, why do we keep asking for respect, respect, respect? There can be some forms of psychotherapy where people who have absolutely no self-esteem, a very low self-esteem, they come up from the jellyfish level of Svadhistana and they need to move a little bit temporarily to Manipura. And for them, Manipura is a bit of a victory because I stopped being a jellyfish. I stopped being the doormat of everybody. But that is not the end of the process. The end of the process is that you have to go way beyond that. So you can go in a more respectful mode for a couple of years and then you have to be ready to go beyond that. And beyond that, the respect falls apart. You go into selflessness, into humbleness. This is why Jesus says, he who is trying to rise himself shall be lowered. Like if you pamper to your ego, you are going to have a sad old age and a problematic death. And he who is lowering himself shall be exalted. The way to be exalted, spiritually, is to lower yourself. Is to lower yourself. Third point, third requirement. The tantric relationships are meant to create spiritual evolution. Like the second point was, again, your Tantric relationships have to contribute to the realization of yourself, not to the inflation of your ego. Analyze. Is your relationship, to what is it contributing? Third, tantric relationships are meant to create spiritual evolution. If you are in a spiritual relationship in the last one month, two months, one year, two years, five years, did it help you evolve spiritually? Does that relationship push you into further spirituality? Or is that relationship a lodestone to your neck, which is slowing down your evolution? What is the function of your relationship? How can a relationship support spirituality? Because in a relationship you invest a lot. There's a lot of time, there is a lot of energy. And if you invest it in it, instead of investing it in your shirshasana and in your laya yoga or in your prana uchara or whatever you do, then... You, are, you have to get something from that investment. Otherwise, it's not worth it. You are wasting. You are investing in a business which is giving you no returns. And everybody knows that that shouldn't be done. Therefore, what are the characteristics of a relationship that can call itself spiritual? That I and my husband, we respect each other a lot. Good. It means you are pampering each other's ego. You are worshipping each other's ego. Because the Supreme Self doesn't need any respect. It's immortal anyway and it's divine. And it doesn't need any confirmation from human sources in any way. And on the contrary, when somebody humiliates you, then you are crying and all your world is falling apart. And the only thing which is left in the middle of this desert is God and your Atman. Sometimes disaster and sadness and depression makes you find your Supreme Self. Eckhart Tolle was depressive beyond the level of suicide. And then he became enlightened. Precisely because when you are depressed 110%, there is nothing more that you can hope, achieve, or ever accomplish. And then the only thing which is left is God for you. That's why Apinava Gupta speaks about Shiva and says, Shiva, you are the refuge of the abandoned ones. Sometimes the spiritual practitioners are the losers. Rumi says, Today I found you. And all those who yesterday were mocking me, now they are sorry that they didn't look the same way I looked. Like until Rumi reached God, Rumi was a weirdo and a loser. And everybody said, I wouldn't want to be like Rumi. Today many spiritual seekers say, I wish I was like Rumi. Because Rumi won. And everybody wants to be like a winner. But Rumi won By losing everything. He lost everything, and this is how he won it. And I could continue, but let's see, because I spoke about evolution, and I have here a quote from a Tantric, not a Tantric, from a Tibetan yogic text, which gives ten statements which are called the ten signs of a superior man. Like, what do the Tibetans think that it is to be evolved? Let's suppose that some of you here in this hall, you think you are above average. And of course, many of you are. I have to say it clearly. And you consider yourself that somehow you are on the way to the Buddha status. You want to stop being a baboon and a caveman or a cave woman, And you would like to go towards angelic states of existence. What are the Tibetans say, well, here are what we think. There are the ten signs of a superior man. Or woman, of course. It's written by man for man, but it's absolutely the same for women. Just apply it symmetrically. One, to have but little pride and no envy is the sign of a superior man. How much pride and how much envy do you have? And how much of it do you manifest in your relationships? You want to have a relationship which helps you to become a Buddha. It's a relationship which has to destroy the envy and the pride. When you have less envy and pride, only then you demonstrate that you are... You don't need to demonstrate it to somebody, but it's your relationship with the universe. You have a status in front of the natural laws of the universe. Like the lion who is the king of the jungle. Why is Buddha a Buddha? He's a Buddha because he deserves, because he actually is. Because he became a Buddha. And therefore, it's natural for the Buddha to be called a great sage, a great enlightened being. Two, to have but few desires and satisfaction with simple things is the sign of a superior man. In your relationships, are you satisfied with small things? Or are you having endless claims and few desires? Three, to be lacking in hypocrisy and deceit is the sign of a superior man how much of a hypocrite honestly are you when you look in the mirror how many things you pretend you are and you are not how much deceit does there exist in you but in your relationship how much deceit is in your how much does your lover know you truly who and what you are what is the hypocrisy, and the deceit. Four, there are ten all in all. To regulate one's conduct, one's life, in accordance with the law of karma, as carefully as one guards the pupils of one's eyes, is the sign of a superior man. Like, no, you tell people, don't take revenge. It's going to be bad for your karma. It doesn't matter. Tibetan yogis say if you are spiritual a sign of that spirituality is that you regulate your life according to the law of karma. To ignore it is the sign that you are a baboon that you don't want to hear about it. Let it be. I don't care today. It's not there. Five. To be faithful to one's engagements and obligations is a sign of a superior man. Don't engage yourself. Don't take obligations if you feel you cannot. If you take them, then fulfill them. That's a sign of superiority. Six, to be able to keep alive friendships while one at the same time regards all beings with impartiality is the sign of a superior man. Like you think everybody is equal? I love all the human beings like Jesus did, and yet Jesus had people whom he called friends. He had people whom they say the disciple that Jesus loved, who is John, John the Apostle, and others. To be able to have this miracle, that on one hand you are detached and equanimous, and on the other hand still there exists the possibility for special relationships, like your lover is something special, although they are the same with the whole humanity. You have friends. This is an apparent miracle, but in the mystery of love, it's perfectly making sense. Seven, to look with pity and without anger upon those who live in evil is the sign of a superior man. There are many people who step besides the path. According to the Buddhist yogis, they deserve compassion, they deserve pity. They don't deserve anger. All of you have been angered by one or another person. And sometimes even in your relationships. If your relationship misconducts themselves and does something which is immoral or unethical, they don't deserve your anger. They deserve your pity. Don't forget that everybody is a human soul searching for enlightenment, searching for light. Exactly as you deserve compassion, everybody deserves compassion. I very, very seldom see people and saw in my life people involved in Tantra who gave each other compassion. No, no, you should be able to, you are a grown-up person, what, you know? Like, we would not give compassion. Sometimes the people dear to us, they stumble existentially and they do things which are not very noble. The correct response is compassion, not anger. That is a sign of the fact that you have evolved. Eight, to allow unto others, this is a splendid one, to allow unto others victory, taking unto yourself defeat, is the sign of a superior man. Like you argue with somebody. In a relationship, it happens all the time. Guess what? You win. You win. I'm getting screwed. It's like I'm I'm at the receiving end. It's fine. This is a sign of a superior man. I can let you win. Every time. Every time. I can be the one who always loses. Not because I'm a loser and an underdog. But because I make a conscious choice, this is a conscious effort, that because I want to be like a Bodhisattva, I take, you know, let the defeat be mine. Like we have been pulling some money, and then in the end we have to take it. And somehow the money doesn't fit. We should all take a hundred but and there are two of us, and there is a hundred and forty-five baht on the plate. Well, you take a hundred, and I take the forty-five. I kind of got screwed. I didn't get my 100 baht back. I lose. I'm happy to lose. I'm happy to lose so that you can win. That's a sign of selflessness. It's a sign of spirituality, according to the Tibetans. Nine. To differ from the crowds, from the multitude, in every thought and action, is the sign of a superior man. People say, we want to be like everybody else. Everybody else is trash in Kali Yuga. If you want to be like everybody else, you are just a mouse in the big Kali Yuga. Tibetans say to differ from the multitude, to differ from the crowds, in every thought and action, is the sign of a superior man. It's a bitter judgment, this one, because it shows you in what kind of world we live. If you want to be a Buddha, can't be like everybody else. That's not superiority. That's just being... Average, trite. And finally, ten. To observe faithfully and without pride your vows of chastity and piety and the customs of the others is the sign of a superior man. To somehow manage to go through the society, do your spiritual practice, your vows, your tapas, without provoking other people, at the same time respecting other people's customs externally, Like you don't need to do any provocation. The Tibetans consider this skillfulness, this harmony, to be the sign of a spiritual person. Just for a comparison, in Christian mysticism, they are giving the so-called gifts of the Holy Spirit. Like when you are evolved, if you are evolved, you are gifted by the Holy Spirit. Just very briefly this is very very short what is it says one of the apostles the same Paul in one of his letters but the fruits of Holy Spirit the fruits of the Spirit are love joy peace forbearance like endurance to to be able to endure a lot kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control against such things there is no law this is why I'm saying in your relationship are you making emerge joy peace forbearance kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control So, we said the tantric relationships have to lead to spiritual evolution. The fourth, there are five bullet points, so we are almost there. The fourth of my bullet points here is that tantric relationships are meant to lead to transfiguration. If your partner looks more and more known to you, more and more banal, more and more right, there definitely is no transfiguration in that. Transfiguration means that for women, their man looks more and more mysterious like Shiva. For for men, their woman looks more and more gracious like Shakti, like the cosmic Shakti. If this is not growing up, then how are we going to reach to the acme of a relationship if the relationship is not becoming more and more transfiguring. On the contrary, it's a known thing that people, because of the loss of sexual attraction and infatuation, people are becoming more and more bored of each other. People are becoming more and more dull with each other. And they are less and less excited and transfiguring each other. Then the relationship is a dead end. That's the tragedy of a relationship. People have sex for three, four years. They have a lot of stress and worries. They fight on their egos. After four years of sex, they lose the oxytocin, which gives attraction to each other. And the relationship becomes more and more dull. But because it's a satisfying bourgeois relationship, in which we pull our money and we have a house and a mortgage and a car and kids and this and that, and because you respect my ego and I respect your ego, then people are complacent. They are, it's okay. It's not okay. It's a dead end. It's death. It's spiritual death. You lull yourself in a fake sense of security and you could be hit by a car any day and just die, you know. Realize that there is no security after all. You know, there's just a false sense of security that we are all living on the edge, that we all could be dead tomorrow, and instead of accepting it that there is no assurance, no security, there is no paper, there is no contract, there is no arrangement which can make things sure, we lull ourselves into this false sense of numbness, we are numb in a false sense of security, and then we consider, well, it's worth it. It's not worth it because you have already parked your car. You are not in the race anymore. You've parked your car and you wait for the clock to tick and the death to come. Thus, if you want to live wildly, you have to keep running, you have to keep going and you have to, under- to try to achieve this transfiguration. Where is the transfiguration? Where is the relationship in which I have transfiguration? and not boredom and flatness and dullness. And my fifth bullet on this list was that tantric relationships are also meant to create oneness, oneness. The final result is one. How does my tantric relationship create oneness or differentiation and polarity and conflict? In the beginning... We have a lot of polarity. I am yang. She is yin. We are longing to merge, to melt with each other. Where is the result of this oneness? This oneness practiced for 20 years. Where does it lead? Why does it lead to separation? We sleep in separate beds. We sleep in separate places. We have separate bank accounts. I mind your business. She minds her business. Is this oneness? Hardly. And that's why there is a meditation. Of course, we could talk about uh, relationships in more technical ways, like the famous story of open relationships, closed, multiple, single, and and other things, showing what are the characteristics of each one of them. It was not the purpose of tonight's lecture to go there. The purpose of tonight's lecture was to give you a few landmarks about what is truly a spiritual relationship. Because sometimes just because we feel good and because we engage in tantric sex, and tantric sex is three times more pleasant than normal sex because it lasts for long, and usually tantric lovers, they can do it very well, and therefore our lovemaking goes through the roof, you know many people have been in Tantra know that their sexual life today is ten times better than what it was ten years ago. Then, for many people, there appears this complacency that, oh, I'm in a good place, I'm doing a lot of good things. And unfortunately, those people, years later, they discover that they went into a dead end. Tantric relationships are very attractive. But we tell to people in the Tantra workshops, that sometimes you sweat blood for building up tantric relationships in this way. And that's why you have to meditate carefully about the fact that if you spend your time and energy into a relationship, what's really the purpose of it? Why are you doing it? Are you doing it because you are afraid to be alone? Because you are getting bored if you are sitting alone in your house? Because you have fears because you are just getting uh, satisfied sexually is it a matter of lust or something what is it that we're talking about what is the purpose of a relationship and when you start bringing it to the parameters then you discover immediately because as soon as you say is my relationship producing love or not real love or not is my relationship producing spiritual evolution happiness, joy, all those things. Is my relationship producing transfiguration and a heightened and exalted view of the world and of the relationship, and so on and so forth. These were a few things which I wanted to underline. I could have gone further. There are more things to debate about the true nature of love. Like, for example, the same Khalil Gibran, he is asked later in the same he comments later in the same opus in the Prophet from where I read the thing about love. He's also asked about marriage. Marriage as separate from love, like love is love, and marriage is considered a social institution which can be accompanied by love or not. And his answer about marriage is a very different answer than the answer that he gives for love. With love he goes all mystical and he is giving you a, the true nature of love. With marriage, he, I'm not going to read it tonight, just it's your homework, just go and find it. It's very easy to find on internet, the translations, the poems of Kahil Gibran. And there you are going to find how he defines marriage, like a long-term relationship accompanied by love, accompanied by wisdom. Accompanied by spirituality, accompanied by meaning, and then he has something exquisite to say in that direction as well. Enough for tonight, it's late already. I hope uh, I gave you some inspiration and I at least put your mind to work about the fact that people in Tantra sometimes they choose this hard roller coaster path, which is called the path of relationship, evolving. Through relationships. I hope I made it clear for you that these relationships have to be very different and very special because the normal way of having relationships, they are leading to a platitude, they are leading to a complacency, and they are leading to a form of numbness and forgetfulness instead of waking you up and reminding, remi- making you remember your Supreme Self. Tantric relationships are meant to reveal your Supreme Self, not to pamper your ego. So sometimes when a Tantric relationship unsettles you severely, it actually does its job brilliantly because by unsettling you severely, it's actually shattering your own beliefs and your own attachments to the ego like Khalil Gibran said, is going to shake your roots like a strong wind. Thus, meditate on which level you are going and if you discover that you don't want to go the full Monty, then of course, adapt. Maybe some of you are in Tantra because you want healing, because you are neurotic and you want emotional healing, because you are, uh, I don't know, searching for some other benefits of the Tantric sexuality. There is nothing wrong with it. We have people who come to yoga because they have a pain in the back or because they have a poor liver and there is nothing wrong with the fact that you want to do yoga just to heal your liver. There is nothing wrong with the fact that you want to do sexual tantra just to produce some emotional or physical or existential healing. But don't mix things in your head. Don't make it as a salad. Have Discrimination, have clarity. Like if you know that you want to cultivate relationships which are conducive to enlightenment, then don't cheat yourself, don't lie to yourself. Make sure that you have relationships which lead to a higher state of consciousness. With this, we have finished for tonight. Um, Always I'm telling to people whenever there are questions, because there are no questions and answers in the satsang, Um, I'm happy to answer many of those questions in the sessions of Q&As on Tuesdays. For the rest, we are finished for tonight. Thank you all for joining the satsang. And see you in the coming weeks. And remember that if you have any themes that you'd love to hear commented, then send me a note, or send to the registration, or put a note in the mailbox at the entrance of Agama there, that red little mailbox, so I can know about your spiritual needs